Hey there, podcast listener. Chris Roseborough here right at the front of the podcast. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know that, right? Yeah, yeah, it, it is. If you don't already support us financially, we truly can use your help. So get on your computer. Go on over to fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons and support us. And, of course, if you would like to do it the traditional way, make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your financial support because we truly can't do what we're doing here without it. All right, on to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, May 2nd, 2013. You know, this is one of those programs where I have no clue how it's going to go. I'm doing something unorthodox in how I produce my radio programs. I'll explain it in a minute. for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. And there is no shortage of crazy things that are being said out there. We try to have a little bit of fun along the way. And um, as I was uh, alluding to at the opening of the program, I am, well... This, today's program is produced kind of in an unorthodox style. Let me explain what's happening. This is that <clears throat> contrary to popular belief, I don't always drive to um, you know to speaking engagements. From time to time, I fly, and so tomorrow I will actually not be in studio, and I will be flying from Indianapolis to uh, San Jose, California, in preparation so that I can speak on Saturday and lecture and hopefully say something intelligent. Uh, Chances of that happening are (laughs) seeming to go down as we speak. But So I've made the executive decision that I was going to do the crazy thing and try to record five programs in four days. Well, as things would have it, uh, today is the day in which I'm going to record two programs. So I'm recording in, you know, today's episode of Fighting for the Faith and tomorrow's episode will be pre-recorded. <laughs> Which means that what I've done is uh, I I I, th- I actually think it was kind of foolish of uh, what I've done here. I <laughs> put together a huge pile of things that I want to talk about and I can't f- figure out for you know, for better or for worse, which ones go with which program. And so I just decided, you know, I've run out of time. I'm just going to have to go for it. So on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith, just think of it as like the burrito program. Today we'll eat part of the burrito and tomorrow we'll eat the other part. And I'm not exactly sure how all the different bites are going to go because I have this huge pile of things that I really want to talk about and uh, bring to your attention but there's this problem, and that is is that I haven't properly chopped up the different parts of the burrito. So as a result of it, 
we might begin at the middle of the burrito or start with the left-hand side of the burrito. I don't know how the burrito is going to get cut up. It's just that there's all this stuff that I want to talk about. <laughs> and so normally I'll tell you what I want to talk about. But see, the thing is, if I told you what I want to talk about on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith, it would be a long list and then I would never get to everything. And so I think what I need to do, because <clears throat> this is an unorthodox way of doing Fighting for the Faith, I just think I need to just dive into it. I, you know, so let, let, let me just, if we're going to talk about what we're going to talk about, let me talk about the things I want to talk about over the next two episodes of Fighting for the Faith. I, I want to talk about... Martin Bashir's smackdown of Bill O'Reilly <laughs> was absolutely brilliant. And uh, I, I'm sad that I hadn't seen it until really recently. And so I want to pass that along for you. If you haven't heard, you know, Mar uh, Bill O'Reilly is writing a book, you know, uh, that, you know, you know, about killing Jesus. And he is making all of these really absurd statements about Jesus and the Bible and stuff like that. And seriously, it's like, it's embarrassingly bad for him. And it's like, if he's purposely setting out to commit, you know, um, you know, ratings suicide, uh, he, maybe that's what he's trying to do is find a way to get out of his business. Because listen, folks, you don't listen to fighting for the faith because I'm an expert on, you know, underwater basket weaving. And if I were to try to do underwater basket weaving, you know, episodes here and talk about the expertise necessary to address that particular topic, I'd probably lose you. Um, and I don't I'm not really good at politics and I generally try to steer away from it. Um, and so, I mean, if I were to all of a sudden start trying to do politics here at Fighting for the Faith, I think I'd lose most of you And because you don't listen to me for politics. You listen for theology, apologetics, sound doctrine, things. You get what I'm saying? And so I, it's, it's embarrassingly bad what's going on with Bill O'Reilly because Bill O'Reilly is just not qualified to be talking about what he's talking about or this book that he's writing. And he's saying these things that show that <laughs> wherever he's gone to do his research, I mean, Wikipedia, I don't know where he's gone. It's clear that there's a problem there. So I, I got a, uh, I have a Bill O'Reilly update in the sense that I'll be passing along the SmackDown uh, that Martin Bashir gave him, which I thought was actually brilliant. Um, I've got a, um, a seeker-driven um, blog post that I want to pass along and comment on entitled Nine Signs Your Church is Ready to Reach Unchurched People. Don't know if we'll get to that today. Um, let's see here. Um, there's breaking news. Uh, something to kind of pass along. Talk about uh, Chris, uh, persecution within the Christian church. Uh, the Pentagon has apparently uh, confirmed that it may court-martial soldiers who share their Christian faith. Um, so apparently that's a bad thing. And a story you probably have not heard about, and the reason you haven't heard about it is because the media doesn't care, um, is that uh, you know, right before Easter, there was a Roman Catholic congregation that was um, graffitied. And if this had happened to a synagogue, uh, it probably would have gotten you know, quite a bit of press and would have been you know, categorized under the category of hate crime against a synagogue. Well, a hate crime has apparently occurred in Southern California against a, a, a Roman Catholic parish. And um, the, only way, the only place it's been covered is a small... A uh, local paper called the Acorn out there in uh, Southern California. So I want to talk about that. Um, and then uh, Stephen Furtick has recently written the foreword to a brand new book out there called Prototype. 
by a, a friend of his by the name of Jonathan Martin. And um, I've only just purchased the book, so I haven't read it yet. But the promo videos have already piqued my interest as um, you know that needs to be read with caution and discernment. And I'll I'll, I'll play for you portions of the promo videos uh, for the express purpose of pointing out how a promo video for a quote Christian book, um, you know what to look for. And as as far as bad things uh, that may tip you off, even before you've read the book, that there may be theological problems. And I think the Jonathan Martin um, uh, prototype you know, promotional pieces, I think, actually d- demonstrate that well. And then I've been receiving a lot of um, emails, tweets, I hate that word, um, Facebook messages uh, from people asking about James McDonald's resignation. And send, they've sent me the links at, you know, to James McDonald's blog, and the blog post posted on April 30th reads, My Resignation, but it's not what you think. He, he's not resigning from being a pastor. He's not resigning from anything um, that actually is significant. And I want to actually read portion of it to you and, and give you what at least my opinion as to what this potentially could be talking about. Um, and, uh, and then we got a Patricia King update. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that uh, that uh, Christian Harfouche guy uh, that we've covered a little bit. He, he's one of the new channel partners over there at XP Media. Well, apparently he flew to uh, Patricia King Studios out there in Phoenix, Arizona, and uh, had a conversation with her about how to receive your miracle. And <laughs> it is such a train wreck. And then we've got a uh, William Tapley update, one that I don't think I should do, but I will do anyway, despite my better judgment. Um, it, <laughs> his most recent video is entitled, Is Barack Obama Possessed? <sighs> So we've got that to do, you know. So you know, there's all kinds. Of, the reality is, is that I intend to hopefully get to all of these different things over the course of the next two days because I'm recording the next two days all in one day, so that I can travel. By the way, Monday will be I will be a best of episode of Fighting for the Faith. Just so you know, I will. Um, well, actually, there is a there is a possibility that Monday might be a a a. a a new show, a new program, um, but it won't be a normal program. And I'm working on trying to uh, interview, um, I forget the guy's last name. It's kind of a complicated last name. Sai, uh, I don't know, he's a, a, a Christian apologist up in uh, Canada who uh, is featured on a brand new video that I had the opportunity to preview um, entitled How to Answer the Fool. And I'm going to be uh, interviewing him hopefully on Monday uh, next week. And um, well, that may be the entire program is the interview with Sai because this – got to tell you, this is probably a, a, one of the most important apologetics training videos or uh, introductory training videos that I've seen in a long time. And Sai is a, a gentleman who uh, it, it kind of is an expert with – it. And kind of a street fighter with uh, Van Til's uh, presuppositional apologetics, and which, if, by the way, if if you've tried to study presuppositional apologetics, it's really not all that easy to kind of get. But once you get it, you go, "Oh, well, that's an argument that I really need to keep a, a hang on." Because, um, you know, it, let's let's put it this way: when it comes to apologetics, uh, I think the right way of looking at apologetics is that it is a function of the law, not the gospel. You know, it's taking every thought captive to make it obedient to Christ, which is a uh, a function of the law. And if if you were to talk about it as far as its role in evangelism, 
Um, it, it, it basically is the function of moving away or removing obstacles that people are throwing out um, so that you can preach the gospel. And, uh, and so it, it, within every apologist's quiver of arrows, there's different types of arguments depending on the person that you're talking to and the type of objections that they're throwing up, if any, uh, to the hearing of the gospel. And uh, presuppositional apologetics, uh, you know, Cornelius Van Til's approach to it, uh, there is some very good merit to uh, that approach, especially with people who are throwing up postmodern atheistic agnostic arguments and claiming you know things like God is immoral and stuff like that. And if you don't know what that means, don't worry. I plan on, on hopefully unpacking some of this um, with my interview with Sai, as well as... Um, uh, basically pointing you to the video itself, which you can purchase and download. Um, it's it's really all not all that long, and it's fascinating to watch uh, this guy who really has his battle scars and wounds out there in the trenches, uh, street preaching and proclaiming Christ. And uh, and it's fascinating his approach to uh, you know to uh, to evangelism and apologetics, and worth you know adding that to your apologetics quiver, if you would. So that'll be next week, and I'm hoping that'll be uh, Monday's episode of Fighting for the Faith. If for some reason I'm not able to interview Sai on Monday, uh, then there won't be an episode of Fighting for the Faith, so that I can recover from my, uh, um, you know, from my trip to California. Yeah, that, yeah, I can have a conversation on the phone, but producing a full program is going to be challenging. So, all of that said, um, I think it is time to dive into the program proper. And by popular demand, that's probably the right way of putting it, I'm going to do a uh, James McDonald update, and uh, it has been, let's just put it this way, there has been a lot of folks who have uh, emailed me and requested that uh, in the future when I do James McDonald updates, they prefer, they prefer the old update music, which was uh, Pink Elephants on Parade, rather than The Gambler by Kenny Rogers. So with that, we're going to dive into the program proper. Here is our James McDonald update music. Here we go. Look out, look out. Big elephants on parade. Here they come. Hippity-hoppity. They're here. And there are big elephants everywhere. Look out, look out. They're walking around the bed on the head. Parade in braid, big elephants on parade. What'll I do? What'll I do? What an unusual view! I can stand the sight of worms and look at microscopic germs, but Technicolor pachyderms is really too much for me. <laughs> I am not the type to faint when things are odd or things are quaint, but seeing things you know that ain't can certainly give you an awful fright. What a sight! Chase them away! Chase them away! I'm afraid, need your aid, pink elephants on parade. Pink elephants. Pink elephants. Pink elephants. Yeah, that's our uh, recently revived, well, return to uh, music uh, for a James McDonald update. Now, if you uh, read James McDonald's blog, which you can find at jamesmcdonald.com, on April 30th, he sent out a blog post entitled My Resignation, and it's created a lot of confusion but it was you know it, i didn't think for a second that james mcdonald was announcing his resignation as a pastor and if that's what you think he was doing 
Go back and read the piece. That wasn't what he was doing. Instead, I think I think he's trying to send a message, uh, kind of a snarky one at that. But uh, let me read from his blog post entitled My Resignation. Here's what James McDonald said. He said, I wanted to wait until we returned from the Holy Land to make my decision public. I am officially announcing my resignation today from a job I have long held and frequently done very poorly. I am not sure how I got into this profession. I know I wasn't invited and I have often been deeply unappreciated. Why spend your life doing something neither required by the Lord nor welcomed by others? Frankly, I gave up the job a while back, but I felt constrained to make my decision known to all who read this blog. Don't be disappointed if you don't see me at my post. I am really done this time. Yes, for me it's over. No more fixing people. I resign. So he's resigned from fixing people. See, he hasn't resigned from being a pastor. Yeah, no, no. He's just resigned from fixing people. He continues. He says, no more setting people straight, helping others see the light. No more putting people on a program or convincing them to look in the mirror and see what they refuse to believe. Helping, yes, praying for, for sure, preaching always and with increased power, I pray. But fixing people individually, no, I'm done. I'm, I'm more stepping up or stepping in or stepping on toes to ring a broken bell that clangs discordantly with the facts about friend or foe. If you were wounded in a bad fix or fast fix or a bad pressure in a fast fix, please accept my apologies. I truly hope you are doing better. I know that I am. Unless requested, unless an obvious critical path, life or death emergency, the fix is over. Was it the temptation to push the pulpit application too far that caused fixing people to spill over into personal interaction? Did knowledge puff me up? I don't remember thinking I was better, but I do recall needing people to be more or better or different for my sake or for theirs, for God's kingdom, no doubt, but also as an increased efficiency in the crossing of paths and the sharing of responsibility. I'm sure that if anyone has ever pointed this out to you, uh, but do you realize it's not easy to say this to you, but from a heart of love, I, I feel I must, this is not going to end well. Like the understated dentist who offers, this is going to pinch. The fixer has a variety of opens that don't really prepare the hearer adequately for what is to follow. You're thinking, what is he talking about? What is he talking about? Well, he gives a list of things that apparently he's not going to fix anymore, okay? So I'm not going to fix the obvious pedestrian wandering aimlessly through the busy airport terminal, dragging their carry-on across the feet of determined passengers seeking an open road to a late flight. Okay, I'm not going to fix store the store clerk who promises three different types uh, times by phone that my friend can pick up my new golf clubs as long as he brings the receipt, then refuses to do so without reason. Each time friend drives over while I was out of the country, I wish that person could get fixed. But I went to the clubs myself and quietly retrieved them without incident because no one was with me who fixes people. What is going on? It makes me wonder, you know... This is a horrible metaphor to use for somebody who's a pastor. But have you ever seen a friend of yours tweeting in the middle of the night and it's clear that they've had a few too many drinks? 
it, it's not pretty. You know, it's not it, or you know, writing Facebook statuses, status updates, and they've had a fight and then had a few too many uh, uh, drinks. Right? It's really embarrassingly bad. It, this is one of those blog posts that makes me wonder. It's like, who? Um, somebody uh, should have uh, should take James aside and say, you know, this is this probably wasn't a good idea. But see, the, what's interesting is the last one, okay? Because he he goes on about talking about all these people he's not going to fix anymore. Well, the last person he's not going to fix is I'm not going to fix preachers in error or erroneous ministry methodists uh, methods or methodo- uh, method methodical madness of any kind. Just going to preach the word in season and out of season and seek to fulfill my ministry. I don't wish you were more loving or more truthful or truthfully more anything. I wish I was more of what Jesus calls me uh, to be for my family and my church family. <clears throat> See, that last one tipped it off for me. It made me think that maybe what's going on here. And, and see, this, that's the thing is, is that it's kind of hard to tell what's going on in this resignation blog post. He's resigning from fixing people. I think, and see, this is speculation on my part. So, and it's just my opinion, which means you can kind of take it or leave it. I think part of what this resignation um, blog post from James McDonald is about, I think he's officially announcing that elephant room three is never going to happen. And he's announcing that elephant three is, isn't going to happen before it was ever announced that Elephant 3 was happening because, you know, he's done fixing people. And, you know, apparently it, elef- the Elephant Room was all about fixing people. And you know who he was trying to fix? Those people in the body of Christ who, well, insist that sound doctrine and, and preaching Christ and good biblical methods and stuff like that when it comes to ministry are, well, mandatory because God's Word says so. See, I think Elephant Room 1 and 2 was all about James McDonald trying to fix people, you know, people like me. And so I think what this is, this resignation, is that James McDonald has officially resigned from doing Elephant Rooms altogether, and that's part of his shtick as to, you know, what he's resigning from. So, you know, maybe you could take a look at it. Again, jamesmcdonald.com, and it's the April 30th, 2013 post entitled, My Resignation, and he's resigned from fixing people. And I think he's basically tacitly saying that there's not going to be an elephant room three, and to which I would say, huzzah. Good move, James. I, I think you were pretty miserable at helping people, especially at elephant room one and two, and Elephant Room 2, where you basically, you know, pronounced T.D. Jakes as having a clean bill of theological health, uh, health um, clearly uh, prematurely because he continues to shill, continues to ask for seed offerings, continues to preach the prosperity gospel, and continues to claim to be a Trinitarian who believes in one God and three persons, as long as by persons you mean manifestations, which is modalism. So he embraces, firmly embraces um, Trinitarian modalism. It's a brand new theology, but all invented by T.D. Jakes as a means of making sure as to not offend uh, long-established financial donors. You don't you want to do anything like that. So there you have it. There's our James McDonald update. And oddly enough, uh, William Tapley's more lucid and easier to understand than James McDonald was in that blog post. Hey, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. 
Christian. Quick break. When we return, we'll just dive right into the next part of the pile. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Relevance Schmelevance. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> seriously wrong with all of this. Uh, this is your captain speaking. Do not be alarmed. You are now free to move about the cabin and do as you please. Just whatever you do, don't question my actions or authority. So you're a brick salesperson, huh? Yep. But why on earth would you want to talk about something like that at a time like... Oh, yeah. I'm thinking it's time that Mr. High and Mighty got relieved of his duties. It is now time for you all to buckle your seatbelts and hold on tight because we are about to start doing barrel rolls. He's going to do what? <laughs> <laughs> 
remember to always trust your pilots. I know what I'm doing. Oh, I do believe the ground is getting awfully close. Purchased your airline tickets for your summer getaway yet? If not, don't pay more for your airfare, hotel room, or rental car than you need to. Long-time Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheapo Air is your one-stop shop for all of your travel needs. And we've got a special promo code for you to use at Cheapo Air to save an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the web banner and book your travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That website address, again, is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, and thank you for your support. Cowabunga. Oh, hey, I didn't hear you come in. What was I just doing, you might ask? Well, I just conquered the outer rim planet of Pico Pond with my trusty double-barreled nuclear plasma cannon. Well, I just did in this video game. But how is it possible for someone like myself to play 13 hours straight and not get a headache? It's quite simple, really. It's because I wear gunners. When I'm rocking these babies, I'm unstoppable. They're not limited to just games, mind you. Oh, no! I rock the spreadsheet, the PowerPoint, the word processor, and when that's all done, I hop my T-16 and fry me some toasters. If you want to get in on the action, then head over to piratechristianradio.com forward slash gunners. You gotta see it to believe it. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if your leader is prone to, you know, snarky outrages like that. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll find our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month 
to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you'd like to contribute, you could do so um, by uh, clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we're doing here without it. Moving along. All right, from the Breitbart.com website, the headline reads, Pentagon may court-martial soldiers who share Christian faith. This is a story that has been causing quite a stir on the Internet. And uh, thanks to the help of somebody who is a chaplain's assistant in the military, we have a little bit more uh, to add to the story. But let me read this initial uh, story from Breitbart.com. And uh, the, the part that I want to get to is the statements made by uh, uh, Mr. Weinstein of the Military Religious Freedom Foundation, which is a complete oxymoron. I mean, he's as much for religious freedom as, uh, well, Hitler was for, you know, the promotion of Judaism. But we'll explain here in a second. Uh, this was written by Ken uh, Klukowski of uh, Breitbart.com. The story reads, The Pentagon has released a statement confirming that soldiers could be prosecuted for mo- promoting their faith. Religious proselytization uh, is not permitted within the Department of Defense. Court-martials and non-judicial punishments are decided on a case-by-case basis. That's a direct quote from apparently, apparently this uh, Pentagon statement. The statement released to Fox News follows a Breitbart News report on, Obama, on the Obama administration Pentagon appointees meeting with anti-Christian extremist Mikey Weinstein to develop court-martial procedures to punish Christians in the military who express their faith. From our earlier report, Weinstein is the head of the Military Religious Freedom Foundation and says uh, Christians, including chaplains, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ in the military are guilty of treason and of committing an act of spiritual rape as serious a crime as sexual assault. He also asserted that Christians sharing their faith in the military are enemies of the Constitution. Now, that, that's as far as I want to read there. And, and here's the idea, is that uh, Breitbart.com apparently was meeting, uh, they have documents that show that the Pentagon was meeting with uh, this uh, Mikey Weinstein of the religi- Military Religious Freedom Foundation and did a follow-up report that said, you know, that they claim that they dug up information that says that um, that uh, that uh, soldiers could be punished for uh, sharing their faith. Well, turns out that the military chaplaincy's office has seen this report and they've responded. Now, before I read to you their response, I think it's important to point this out. And that is, is that the rhetoric of Mikey Weinstein of the Military Religious Freedom Foundation, he wants, it's apparently Military Re, uh, Freedom from Religion Foundation should be what it's called, that that uh, rhetoric of his is a flat-out demonization of Christianity. That's exactly the same kind of de- demonization and rhetoric that we saw in Germany uh, with the rise of Hitler and the type of rhetoric that was used against the Jews at the time of uh, the Holocaust. And this that is not rhetoric that is conducive to re- uh, religious freedom. That's exactly the kind of rhetoric that if it takes root in the major in you know in the in the main, main culture of, of America could lead to flat out, flat out open 
persecution, uh, you know, military, you know, legally and otherwise, of uh, Christians who share their faith. So the important thing in that story is the rhetoric of Mikey Weinstein. That's a precursor to open persecution and to measures. Uh, that well, that wouldn't go well. But anyway, the Pentagon has responded, and the military chaplaincy's office has responded. And he, here's a, a story that came out just today in Stars and Stripe, uh, Stars and Stripes, and it says this: Pentagon okay to talk about faith, but not to push beliefs on others. Um, uh, uh, Dateline Washington. This was written by Chris Carroll of Stars and Stripes. It's okay to evangelize, but it's not okay to proselytize. That's what the Pentagon said Thursday, attempting to clarify its position on religious speech in uniform as controversy swirled up around the press reports over possible prosecutions of troops for sharing their faith. What it comes down to, officials said, is that discussing matters of faith and religious practice with a willing audience is allowed, but pushing religious beliefs on those who don't want to hear it is a form of harassment forbidden under Defense Department policies. Quote, service members can share their faith, evangelize, but not... but must not force unwanted intrusive attempts to convert others of any faith or no faith to one's belief. That's proselytization. Pentagon spokesman Lieutenant Commander Nate Christensen said in a written statement, officials said that there was no plan to step up disciplinary action to weed out unacceptable religious speech. Outlets, including Fox News website and the Washington Times, published an earlier statement from Christensen that appeared to raise the possibility of prosecutions. Quote, religious proselytization is not permitted within the Department of Defense. The statement read, court-martials and non-judicial punishments are decided on a case by case basis. The the lead of a story that appeared in the Washington Times website Thursday concluded that the Pentagon meant that soldiers who promote their faith can be prosecuted under military law, but officials said the quote combined two separate statements, one about regulations against proselytization, another about how court-martials are brought to wrongly raise the specter of a move to bring increased disciplinary and legal actions against religious activity. So, Stars and Stripes has made it clear that, uh, you know, that you know, Christians can share their faith. But I think the more interesting aspect of the story is, well, Mikey Weinstein's claims and uh, that Christians, including chaplains sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, are guilty of treason and committing an act of spiritual rape as, as, serious, as serious as a crime as sexual assault. Um, boy, that's some very, very inflammatory rhetoric. And again, it's, well, it has a historical precedent, and that's exactly the same kind of rhetoric and demonization that we saw with the rise of Hitler and the ensuing Holocaust. Interesting stuff. I think open persecution of Christians is probably not that far away. Moving along. All right, this next uh, section, this next uh, piece I want to uh, cover is, um, well, it's from a uh, a website and I don't even know how to say this guy's name. Uh, it's like Carrie, uh, Carrie Newhoff, or yeah, and it's kind of a strange name. C A R E Y, Carrie, and his last name is Newhoff. N I E U A U W H O F. Yeah, CarrieNewhoff.com. And on his blog, he's got a blog post called Nine Signs Your Church is Ready to Reach Unchurched People. Nine signs that your church is ready to reach unchurched people. And after reading these nine signs, I think this blog post needs to be rewritten. Nine signs that your church is ready to go off the cliff and stop preaching Christianity. 
<clears throat> Kerry uh, Newhoff writes, he says, Almost every church I know says they want to reach unchurched people, but few are actually doing it. Part of the problem stems from the fact that many churches don't really understand unchurched people. Um, and part of the problem is that our model of church is designed to reach and help churched people, not unchurched people. Churches haven't embraced change deeply enough. So you can say you want to reach people all day long. You can teach about it uh, every week. But if you haven't designed your church around ministering to people who don't go to church, you might as well be preaching that you want to lose weight while eating a triple cheeseburger. Now, by the way, I'm going to pause right there for a second and uh, pull up an article I wrote back in October of last year entitled, uh, For Whom Do Pastors Exist? For Whom Do Pastors Exist? And let's take a look at what the Bible says before we read more of Kerry Newhoff's Nine Signs That You're Ready to Reach on Church People. Um, in the section entitled, The Purpose of Spiritual Gifts is to Build Up the Church, Not the World, um, here's what I wrote. I said, the Bible teaches that God, the Holy Spirit, gives different gifts to different believers for the building up of the body of Christ. See 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 through 7. Teaching is one of the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to pastors, and this gift is to be used specifically, according to Scripture, for believers. Ephesians chapter 4 verses 8 through 13 states this very clearly. Here's what it says. In saying that he, Jesus, ascended, what does it mean that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists, the shepherds and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So in clear, unambiguous language, God states, because God's the Holy, God the Holy Spirit is the one who inspired the Apostle Paul to write that, that shepherds, pastors, and teachers in the church exist to equip the saints, not unbelievers, and to build up the body of Christ, not the world. This is clear and irrefutable. Those who have the gift to teach are commanded to feed Christ's sheep by teaching the word of God. The duties of shepherds and teachers within the church are governed by the instructions given by Jesus Christ. John chapter 21, verses 15 through 17, says this. Uh, this is Jesus' encounter with uh, Peter. He says, When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, the son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to them, to him, Feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything and you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Notice that in this passage, Jesus doesn't tell Peter to entertain goats or to dazzle the world. Instead, Christ soberly and firmly reinstates Peter after he denied Jesus three times, and Peter was reinstated into ministry, and that ministry was to shepherd and feed Christ's sheep. These commands by Jesus to Peter stuck with him his entire life. Peter himself would later exhort elders, pastors, with these words, quote, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder 
and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercise oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. That's First Peter chapter 5, verses 1-4. through 4. This shepherding language is also used by the Apostle Paul when he addresses the elders of the church of Ephesus. Here's Paul's words of exhortation from Acts chapter 20, verses 28-31. through 31. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Now, it's clear from these passages that pastors are not literal shepherds and that Christians are not literal sheep. All of these images are metaphors that help create a mental picture of the difficult and sacrificial work of pastors. So when Jesus told Peter, feed my sheep, what was Jesus referring to? What does a pastor shepherd feed Christ's sheep with? The answer is simple, the word of God. The two passages Two passages will suffice in demonstrating this fact. Jesus answered uh, from Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, The man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. This was while Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness, tempted to turn stones into bread. And Jesus says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And then second, uh, for, uh, sorry, Second Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 uh, through 4, verse 4. But as for you, Pastor Timothy, continue in what you have learned and firmly believe, knowing from whom you have learned it and from how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. So I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, to preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers who will suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. No commentary is needed for these verses because they clearly teach that God's word is sheep food and that pastors are to be feeding the scriptures to Christ's sheep. So the next time you hear a seeker-driven pastor or church planter or church marketer or church consultant justify shallow sermons and entertainment-driven stunts and you know talk about doing church for the unchurch. Uh, in saying that the church doesn't exist for believers, kindly inform him that regardless of who the church exists for, the job of the pastor is to serve believers and that Christ's sheep and Christ's sheep and that if he won't do his job, that he's rebelling against Jesus Christ himself. Now, I wrote that back in October, and it applies here. And why? Because here's a mm, church marketing consultant, apparently, telling people, you're not ready to reach unchurched people if your church doesn't exist for the unchurched. So how, how are the, here are the sign, nine signs, apparently, that your church is ready to embrace unchurched people. Okay, <clears throat> here we go. Number one, the, your main service engage, your main services engage teenagers. I see that's sign number one. I've talked with many church leaders who don't, who want to reach unchurched people who can't understand why unchurched people don't like their church. Well, it's real simple. The reason why unchurched people don't like the church or any church is because they're sinners. 
They're at war with God. That's why they hate the church, period. Okay, So they would be stumped until I asked them one last question. Do the teens in your church love your services and want to invite their friends? As soon as I asked that question, their leader's expression would inevitably be changed. He or she would look down at the floor and say, well, no. So here's what I believe. If teens find your main services, yes, the ones you run on Sunday mornings, boring, irrelevant, and disengaging, so will unchurched people. As a rule, if you can design services that engage teenagers, you've designed a church service that engages unchurched people. Oh, in other words, what we're looking for is a church we're looking for a church service that engages immature teenagers and gives them what they want. That's ridiculous. By the way, I teach the teens at our church. And what I find interesting is is that the teens at our church and I go to a church that we do the liturgy, you know, that old uh, irrelevant thing. Um they 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 have no problem inviting their friends. In fact, they're oftentimes inviting their friends to church. And their friends, oddly enough, find it to be fantastic. And we don't have a praise band. We don't have smoke machines. We don't have you know spinning bottle lights or anything like that. We don't have a disco ball or and you know, the pastor, you know what he does? He gets up and he reads the pericope for this, you know, Sunday morning. You know, we got an Old Testament lesson, we got an epistle lesson, we have a gospel lesson, and then he preaches usually from the gospel text. And you know, we have the Lord's Supper, and we sing some hymns. We have an organ, and the place is generally packed. And the teens love and often invite their um, unchurched teenage friends to church. Isn't that weird? It's strange, isn't it? Next, uh, number two, people who attend your church actually know unchurched people. Many Christians say they want to reach unchurched people, but they don't actually know any unchurched people well enough to invite them. Um, That would be a problem, right? So, yeah, if you don't know anybody who – and by the way, unchurched, that's ridiculous. Uh, We're not churching people, okay? We don't church them. Church – yeah, church (laughs) – yeah, we're not Christians don't exist to church people and ch- Christians aren't churched people. They are people who are penitent believers in Jesus Christ. I think it's dangerous to change the word from Christians to churched versus unchurched. It's, it's, it's slipping in a false theology. Anyway, so if you don't know anybody who's a Christian, I which I find hard to believe. Um I know lots of non-Christians, lots of them, and I don't even get out much. Um, But anyway, it says, so you need to understand, you need to know them. And so one of the reasons why uh, we run almost no church programs at his church uh, where I serve, other than small groups and a few other steps towards discipleship, is that we want our families to get to know unchurched people. There we go again. They're they're pagans. They're non-Christians. We want them to play community sports, get involved at their kids' school, and have time for dinner parties and more. You can't do that if you're at church six nights a week. We don't... We don't do many ministries because our people are our ministry. Okay. So are your attenders prepared to be non-judgmental? Oh, okay. So we don't want to talk about sin. Unchurched people. There we go again. They're unbelievers. They're not unchurched. They are unbelievers. They're dead in trespasses and sins. It's not that they're not churched. It's that they're unbelievers. Uh, un, uh, unbelievers, I'm going to change the word here, uh, do not come uh, pre-converted, they will they will have lifestyle issues that might take years to change. And let's be honest, don't you? Uh huh. Yeah. So we're not supposed to preach the law to them, so they understand the forgiveness of sins. Got it. Okay. Cleaning up your behavior is not a precondition for salvation, at least not in Christianity. Now I agree with that, but um, 
understanding that you're a sinner in need of a Savior, that is. Um, what God has done for us and Jesus saves us, not what we have done for God. Is your congregation really ready to love unchurched people, not just judge them? Now, the question is, are they ready to preach law and gospel, sin and grace, repentance and the forgiveness of sins, so that they can be brought to penitent faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins? That does require you to preach the law, and God's law does condemn our sin. Yeah, so it's not just, you know, yeah, don't judge them. No, 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 we need to judge them. Everybody in Christianity is judged and found to be a sinner. But it doesn't stop there. The, the answer is the forgiveness of sins and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of those sins. One of Jesus' genius approaches was to love people into life change. Um, really, um, you got any examples of that? If you, if you, if your people can do that, you're ready to reach unchurched people. Number four, you're good with questions. This one's still hard for me. I like to think that every question has an answer. I think one of the reasons unchurched people flee churches is because they feel shut down when every question they ask has a snappy or even quick answer. They will find answers, but you need to give them time. Embracing the questions of unchurched people is a form of embracing them. This sounds like postmodern gook. Seriously, uh, uh, we just need to embrace their question. So, okay, so let me see. My church is ready to reach the unchurched, which is a f- horrible way of talking about them, if and when they come and they ask a question. So they can ask a question like, um, all right, so um, what do you guys teach regarding homosexuality? Okay, well, I'm ready to reach them when I say, well, let me just embrace your question. And then say nothing. So am I ready to embrace the question? Hmm. Yeah, I'm. I'm, I'm embracing. I. I just. I want to sit here and just take in this moment. We can. We can uh, experience truth in conversation within community. What a great question! Let me embrace that. This is nonsense. Okay. So somebody who is a non-Christian comes to your church and they hear the gospel. They're confronted with their sins. They hear of Christ's forgiveness, one on the cross, and they ask a legit question. You know, well, what does the Bible teach about homosexuality? You're supposed to embrace the question rather than tell them what the, what the Bible says? Oh, it's real simple. Here's the answer to the question. Homosexuality or homosexual sins are sins just like every other sin. Uh, adultery, lying, stealing, cheating, you know, things like that. Coveting. And um, yes, it, we say that homosexuals are sinners. But see, that's the thing. In Christianity, everybody's a sinner. Because Jesus came to save sinners, and if you're not a sinner, then you don't need a savior, and then you don't need Jesus, because Jesus came to save sinners. So, um, you know, under you know, for somebody who's engaged in homosexual practices and lifestyles and things like that, um, it's important for them to understand that they're a sinner, and that that's a sin, because then we can tell them about how Christ died for that sin, and how they need to repent and trust Jesus for the forgiveness of the. See, there's the answer, right? And rather than giving them the answer, this guy is saying we just need to embrace the question. It's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. In fact, what this basically is saying is is apparently the church grows by not preaching law and gospel, sin and grace, repentance, and the forgiveness of sins. But when somebody who's a pagan comes to church and they ask a question, you go, oh, that's great. That's a great question. I just embrace that. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Number five, you're honest about your struggles. Um, unchurched, these would be pagans, uh, get suspicious when church leaders and Christians want to appear to have it all together. Now, I agree with this. Um, you know, Christians who want to make it appear like they have it all together, that's probably a result of bad preaching where it's all law, no gospel. Yeah. You know, so I agree that you need to be honest about your struggles, and that's why you want to attend a church where people can freely confess that they're sinners and freely hear that they're forgiven. Next one, six, you have uh, you have easy, obvious, strategic, and helpful steps for new people. Okay, well, that's that's kind of uh, no problem with that. I get it. Um, number seven, you've dumped all your assumptions. So it's easy to assume that unchurched people must know at least the basics of the Christian faith. Lose that thinking. How much do you really know about Hinduism or Taoism? That's about how much many people, unchurched people, really know about Christianity. Don't fight it. Embrace it. Make it easy for everyone to access what you're talking about whenever you're talking about it. What? Okay, so um, it's easy to assume that unchurched people must know at least the basics of the Christian faith. I would say that they don't. We must assume that somebody who isn't a Christian doesn't know the the basics of the Christian faith. Otherwise, they'd be Christian. So um, this thing doesn't make any sense. Now, number eight, your outreach isn't just a program. Many Christians think having a service for unchurched people, a program designed for unchurched people, is enough. It's not. When you behave like reaching unchurched people can be done through a program or an alternate service, you're building a giant brick wall for church people to walk into. You might as well tell them, this program is for you, but our church is for us. Sorry. You know, it's real simple. This is actually, again, this is ridiculous. Okay. Um, <clears throat> everybody who leaves our congregation every Sunday, this is real simple. They go out into the mission field. They preach the gospel. They tell their uh, they tell their friends and family about Jesus and the forgiveness of sins. And they're very effective at it. And you know what they end up doing? Inviting people to church. And you know what? Everybody's invited to come and hear the word of God. Not everyone's invited to the Lord's Supper, but everyone is at least invited to come and hear the gospel. It's real simple. We don't it, evangelism isn't a program and it doesn't require us to change our church service. What it requires us to do is to preach the gospel and to tell people about their crucified and risen savior and invite them to church to hear the word of God. It Number nine, are you flexible and adaptable? In the future, you will not arrive. I think the approach the unchurched people and the strategy behind the mission of the church needs to be flexible and adaptable. Don't design a now we are done uh, now we are done model to reaching the unchurched. You might never be done. Churches that are adaptable and flexible in their strategy, not in their mission or vision, will have the best chance of continually reaching unchurched people. How quickly can you your church change? Our church doesn't need to change. No church needs to change. The job of the pastor is to feed the sheep. They don't need to change at all. In fact, if no, this is ridiculous. You have a church that's constantly changing and adapting and entertaining you know, pagans and stuff like that. Um, they're basically blown hither and yon by everything. So basically this guy's idea is you want to grow your church real simple. Put away that doctrine stuff. Put away you – know, stop making church for uh, you know, uh, Christians. Uh, put, you know, stop trying to give answers and, uh, and just embrace questions and be ready to change constantly. This is a formula for creating, well, churches that end up having their bad sermons reviewed here at Fighting for the Faith. This is not a uh, formula for advancing the kingdom of God and for people to be brought to repent in faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Uh, this is a formula for creating so-called churches where people are entertained into, well, hell. 
All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we will we'll, we'll be listening to a Lisa Bevere uh, sermon uh, message. Yeah, well, stay tuned. You'll figure it out when we get back. Here we go. Living a life of purpose can't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... Listening to Byron Christian Radio. If everybody had a Have you purchased your airline tickets for your summer getaway yet? If not, don't pay more for your airfare, hotel room, or rental car than you need to. Long-time Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheapo Air is your one-stop shop for all of your travel needs. And we've got a special promo code for you to use at Cheapo Air to save an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, then click on the web banner and book your travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That website address, again, is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. And thank you for your support. Cowabunga. Come in. What was I just doing, you might ask? Well, I just conquered the outer rim planet of Pico Pond with my trusty double barreled nuclear plasma cannon. Well, I just did in this video game. But how is it possible for someone like myself to play 13 hours straight and not get a headache? It's quite simple, really. It's because I wear gunners. When I'm rocking these babies, I'm unstoppable. They're not limited to just games, mind you. Oh no! I rock the spreadsheet, the PowerPoint, the word processor, and when that's all done, I hop my T-16 and fry me some toasters. If you want to get in on the action, then head over to piratechristianradio.com forward slash gunners. You gotta see it to believe it. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. Okay, so here at Fighting for the Faith, we've talked about narcissism, which is narcissistic eisegesis. We now have a new term that we uh, are going to add to our lexicon called psychogesis, which means you're psychologically eisegeting. I'm thinking after what you're going to hear today, we're going to have to add another word called jungle Jesus. 
Jesus. Yeah, yeah. Hang on. Here we go. The good, the bad, and, well, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. And um, today's message, uh, sermon, uh, I don't know what this is. It's uh, Lisa Brevere speaking to women. The name of the message is entitled Dangerously Awake. And what I find really weird about this message is that, you know, she's exhorting people in the name of God to apply the lessons that she learned while watching hours of Animal Planet television. <laughs> I am not making that up. You know, because she's she really has some deep spiritual insight that she's learned from watching the Animal Planet and programs that have to do with nature and things like that, especially as it pertains to the lives of lions and lionesses and how important it is for women to be dangerously awake because, you know, Satan is after women and they can't be um, tranquilized. And I know you're thinking, what are you talking about? Well, I don't know what I'm talking about because I don't know what she was talking about. I'm just telling you what it is that you're going to hear. And so, like I said, we've got Jesus. Psychogesis, which is psychological eisegesis, and I think we're going to have to add a new one. Um, Jungle Jesus. Yeah. So without any further ado, let me kill the music. Here is Lisa Bevere and her message entitled Dangerously Awake. Here we go. And yes, it starts off with jungly type music. Okay, welcome to session two. We're going to be talking about dangerously awake. This is like one of my favorite chapters. And I'm going to open up with a story. I'm going to try to actually open every session with a little story of the lion or the lioness. And, uh, you know, I want to underscore just because it is a lioness doesn't mean it's not a lion. You know, that's just the female term for the lion. But, you know, like a male dog and a female dog, I'm not going to say the term, but they're both dogs. And so anyway, we need to remember that you are, you know, supposed to have those attributes of the lion and the lioness. And so I have tortured my family watching documents. Why are people to have the uh, attributes of lions and lionesses? What passages in the Bible command lion-like behavior for Christians? Entries, YouTubes, we had to watch Planet Earth, which made my children fall asleep. But we watched everything. I read children's book. I grabbed every bit of information I could because I actually found that even just watching the lion and the lioness did something inside of me that, um, you know, we just lose that factor in our tame, sterile, barren kind of clean, controlled, air-conditioned world. And so I needed to have a little feral mixed into my life, and I would watch them. And one of the documentaries I watched was actually... Okay, you needed to have a little feral mixed up in your life. Okay, so the, the feral thing to do is to sit in the comfort of your home watching television about lions and lionesses. That's your definition of a little bit of feral in your life. And whatever insights you gleaned while in your air-conditioned home watching 
television has now translated into the very behaviors that Christian women need to be applying to their lives because you need a little feral. That doesn't sound feral at all. It sounds about as sanitized as it gets. The resettlement of one young lion and two lionesses into South Africa. You, you know, we, we aren't supposed to put wild things with domesticated things. And so the wild lions had been killing cattle. They were like, yay, look at this herd. They were killing cattle and killing the farmer's sheep. And you, you can't really keep it, use a fence to keep out a lion. And so they had gone ahead and created a reserve for the lions and lionesses in South Africa. And there had been a season of captivity while they created the reserve. And now it was time to reintroduce these young lions and lionesses. But there was three that had been born in captivity. They had never known the wild. They had never seen the wild. They were used to being fed by their trainers every day. And so what they did is they added actually a little annex of a fenced-in area to what would become their reserve to get them kind of used to their territory. And then after a while, they rolled back the fence, and they expected the three lions just to walk in. But they didn't. They were terrified, and they would actually walk the borders back and forth, back and forth, but not cross where the fence had at one time been. And so they said, okay, we're going to have to do something to get them out into the wide open space that we prepared for them. And so what they did is they stopped feeding them. And then they killed a buck, and they put it well into the reserve area, and they watched and waited. And you know what? It took a long time for the hunger of those lions to override their hesitation. And even in the lion world, there's alpha lions and alpha lionesses. And the alpha lioness became increasingly restless. And she went back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And I don't know if the smell just finally got to her, but she leapt over into the new territory. And it was amazing. As soon as she leapt over, she looked back. And when she looked back, she kind of did this to her sister and her sister. I just need to remind you all that this story does not appear anywhere in the Bible. Just want to make that clear. Leapt over as well. And they both looked at the lion and he was like, no way. I am not coming out. I'm great staying here in this bush. I'm going to see if you guys die. And so he was just kind of hiding in this bush area. He was actually cowering. It was kind of embarrassing since he was the biggest. He was kind of cowering. And the two lionesses, they go out. They find what they've been downwind and smelling for so long. They find this big, it was pretty massive because it was for the three, this big buck. And they smell it. And then they did something amazing. You know what they did? They didn't start eating. These two lionesses dragged this kill back into the enclosure, not so they could be safe, but so that the lion could have the lion's share. And when I saw this, I thought, okay, there's women in there going, "Mm, wow, like they're about ready to say amen. Oh, no. Wow. Are we that noble? You know, everything that begins should be first God's. And those lionesses seem to have this ability that maybe some of us have forgotten. When God opens up a banquet for us on one side, we don't just go and feast and forget about those that are behind. We need to bring back the goodness. Those lionesses, they honored the lion that would be, not the one he was. And as women, 
who God is opening up thresholds to us. We need to have this same mentality that we're not just going to go out and say, Hey, chicken man, I'm sorry. We're going to have a banquet out here. If you guys can't get with the program too bad, we say, no, we're supposed to do life together. And we bring the goodness back. Then they watch this lion and his two lioness, because you know, when that happened, it was a defining moment probably for that relationship among that pride. See, he knew that they were for him and that they were going to establish him in strength. And so they'd establish an area. There was other lionesses. Um, so you can read the mind of lions on documentaries that are played on television. Hmm. Wow. So she, we're, this is, she's now projecting psychology onto these lions to make an application for women in the church that they need to apply from this deep spiritual insight that she's, well, discovered all apparently she knows how to read the mind of lions that that's quite a gift quite a talent always trying to challenge get him to come over their territory but he was like no way these girls brought me the book when i was scared and so he stayed with them but he had a collar and the collar was to track his movements but the collar became a problem because lions will determine whether they're going to attack each other by the width of their mane they eyeball each other and if they realize they can't get their jaws around the other lion's neck they will not confront them but because the collar made his mane look smaller this guy was getting attacked left and right and he had scars to prove it and so all these guys with dart guns and tranquilizers were so excited they get in one of those, you know, topless, carless, you know, they just have no doors on them, vehicles, and you could smell the testosterone. They were going to tranquilize the, the lion and they were going to remove the, you know, the collar off of him. And the guys were like talking and they're so excited and they're going through the brush and it's the camera's bouncing. And- no, no kidding. She's trying to make spiritual life application points from a lion documentary. I mean, you know, I don't particularly care for the animal planet, and I don't really watch it. But, I mean, let me think here. You know, I, I it's baseball season. You know, I'm wondering. I, I should probably see if I can try to, try to find some spiritual life application that I can help you all with um, from the Dodger games that I'm able to catch on, on MLB.com. It's, yeah. I mean, so I can tell you about the deep spiritual insights of, like, the stand-up double that um, that – well, Matt Kemp got the other day, or or the uh, the you know the near you know, perfect game that uh, was pitched by uh, Clayton Kershaw, or you know, so, uh, man, there's some deep spiritual insight right there. And I got to tell you, I mean, I can do some great psychological projecting into the minds of these players and just make stuff up. And then you guys can invite me to your men's retreat, and I could be like the guy who you know go, you know goes around the country showing you all the deep spiritual insights that you can glean while watching Major League Baseball. I, I'm sure it'd be a hit. I could probably write a, a book and maybe sell some videos. And I mean, I'd probably make a lot of money doing that. Yeah. Oh yeah, that Rosebro. He's the 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 Bible baseball guy, right? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. It just changed my life. I mean. I, in my life, I've experienced major life change. When that sermon that he did about, you know, uh, you know how Juan Uribe, uh, the third baseman for the Dodgers, how you know he overcame, you know, uh, shin splints and and was able to get back in the rotation. Oh man, it just totally changed my life. That's what we're talking about here. She's finding life applications from a Animal Planet television show all of a sudden they see him 
and he's magnificent. And, you know, the lion is a standout on the field. The lioness is stealth, but you can see his silhouette everywhere. And so they see him, they shoot him with the first dart, and it's like hanging off his leg. And he just looks at him like, what was that? And he just keeps walking. I mean, he's not even phased. He's not even tripping. And they're like, this is like super lion. We're going to have to shoot him again. So they shoot him again. And he goes down, incapacitated, but not unconscious. And they're driving up. They're all excited. They're going to take the collar off. You know, the big super lion. When all of a sudden, there's a surprise for them. Up pops the lioness and she's been there all along, but they didn't see her. And she begins to form a perimeter back and forth in front of the fallen lion. And she's like, no way you're not coming through this. And she's back and forth. And I heard the commentators say to get to him, we will have to tranquilize her. Oh no. It's time for a gratuitous fighting for the faith musical interlude. Sorry for messing that up. Seriously, at least in the you know the Disney Lion King, the uh, the lions had names. You know they had characters. <laughs> now we have these nameless lions that are we're supposed to be gleaning insights from. God's trying to tell us something. You know from the lives of these lions that appeared on this Animal Planet documentary that um, Feral Lisa Bevere saw while sitting in her air conditioned home watching television. And I thought. Huh. That's what he's always done. To get to the men, the enemy will often tranquilize the women. So they shoot the lioness. To get to the men, the enemy will often tranquilize the women. (laughs) What a load of nonsense. And people are paying to have this woman come and, you know, fly across the globe and speak at their women's retreats. (laughs) Oh, man. She goes down, they jump off, they cut off the collar, then they go and look at her, 
And they notice there's a thickening among, around her breast, among her midsection. And they know she has a child in her. So they know there's now legacy in her. And so they're checking. So they know there's now legacy in her. Oh, yeah, the deep spiritual. There's legacy in the lioness. Checking her out. And the whole time they're checking her out. He is in the background growling. I mean, he is like, you better not mess with my woman. And so, you know, he's like growling, growling. And they like. Yeah, men, do you growl and when, you know, they tranquilize your woman? I mean, are you out there growling and say, don't mess with my woman? Yeah, because especially if she's got legacy inside of her, you, you need to be, you need to growl more. That's what God wants you to do. Like they make really quick work of her. They get the dart out of her and they get back in the vehicle. They put it in high gear. They're speeding away. When I hear the narrator say, oh, thank God we're safe because there is nothing more dangerous than being in the presence of lions when they are fully awake. And when I heard the pairing of dangerous and fully awake, I thought, are we the church Dangerous, and are we fully awake? Um, what? <laughs> all right, church, are you dangerous? I, I, um, um, am I supposed to be? Are you fully awake? Well, half the time. You see, you got to understand that at night I go to bed, and when I go to bed, I, I fall asleep, and so about half, you know. Half my life is spent being asleep. It's true. And so, but when I'm awake, though, I, I'm fully awake. Um, but I don't know if I'm dangerous. <laughs> and, and there's women in this message going, amen, and, and yeah, whoa, and oh, <laughs> this is just absurd. Or are we? How is it that this, by the way, is replaced sound biblical preaching? We conscious but incapacitated. Are we aware of what's going on, but just kind of laying on our side growling? You know what? We need to be dangerous and fully awake. You need to ask yourself. Where does God tell me I need to be dangerous? Where's all the big, you need to be dangerous passages in the Bible. I mean, you're supposedly speaking for God here. This is some insight that you're sharing at a Christian women's retreat and the church needs to be dangerous. Why? Because, well, Lisa Bevere was at home in her air conditioned home watching the animal planet on her television. She had a moment of feral, you know, going on there. Ah, yeah. And you know, she heard some guy say, you know, lions are dangerous when they're fully awake. And that was the moment. God, the Holy spirit, the clouds parted, a beam from heaven came down and alighted on Lisa Bevere. And her mind opened up and she could hear the very message that God was trying to have her communicate to the entire church. That the church needs to be fully awake and dangerous. Thus saith the Lord, through the animal planet on Lisa Bevere's television in her air-conditioned home. What is at risk if I am tranquilized? Who does the animal... Who's tranquilizing me? I haven't been... If, <laughs> folks, I, 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 gotta, I gotta tell you, it's been a long time since I've been tranquilized. I mean, a really long time. In fact, how old was I? Um, 21? I think I was 21. I had... 
my appendix taken out. And they, you know what they did? They, they put me under. So I think that's the closest thing to tranquilization that I've experienced. And it's been over 20 years. I mean, <laughs> it's been like 23, 24 years since that's happened. So I, you know, I, how, how, are you often tranquilized? You know, because the enemy, you know, he does his best work when you're tranquilized. I, so, but I can I can say with all certainty that I, neither me nor my wife, that we've been tranquilized any time this week, last month, no time this year have we been tranquilized. You know, going back, no, no, we weren't tranquilized last year either. So, no danger there. Enemy, attack if you are not conscious. So... This is what is before us as women. How does this happen to us? How do we get tranquilized? Nobody is shooting us with dart guns. But there's something that happens that actually is way more subtle. Romans 13, verses 11 through 14. I'm going to read out of the message. It says, but make sure that you don't get so absorbed and exhausted in taking care of all your day-by-day obligations that you lose track of time and doze off. You're teaching from the message paraphrase from Romans chapter 13. And then you're going to exegete from the paraphrase version of Romans chapter 13. This cannot end well. If you know anybody who uh, passes himself off as a Christian pastor, teacher, um, women's conference retreat person, and they're exegeting the message paraphrase. Yeah, you're being hoodwinked and bamboozled, and there's no sound biblical hermeneutics going on. They're so far removed from what the actual biblical text says that what they're about to tell you and make the points from the message paraphrase, that's actually not what the biblical text actually says. But, of course, she thinks this is important. So we continue. Uh, let's con- Let's hear what she does, though, with this Romans chapter 13 passage from the message. Oblivious to God. When you're exhausted, when you're absorbed in your day by day, it doesn't mean we don't do it, but when you're absorbed by, if it's all you think about, when it's what takes all of your energy, then you get exhausted. And when you get exhausted... Oh, no. So if you get absorbed by something, it takes all of your energy. That's what the message paraphrase is preaching against. Let's take a look at Romans chapter 13 from like the ESV, a good translation. Here's what it says. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God... And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Uh, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God and an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For uh, because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Owe to no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you 
shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the of the law. Besides this, you know the time that for the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Hmm. Nothing here about you being overcome and your time being sucked up and you know whatever the what I'm not even sure what her point is at this point but we continue exhausted you know what you get oblivious to everything but your state of exhaustion it says oblivious to god which is what we need to know what god is doing and then it says the night is about over dawn is about to break be up and awake to what god is doing hey we need to be awake to what god is doing we don't need to be awake to what they're doing. We need to be awake to what God, what does that mean? Or what they're not doing or what we think they should do or what we think they shouldn't do. We need to be up and awake to what God is doing. You can look all over the earth and you can see that God has the widow, the orphan, the poor, the captive in mind. God is doing something in the church and we need to be awake to what he is doing and get involved in what he is doing. Not, you know, just be only aware of what other people are doing. Because the day-to-day is exhausting. But when we do what God is doing, it's meat. It's strength. And it says God is putting the finishing touches on the salvation work he began. He's always been the one that began it when we first believed. We can't afford, you and me, sisters, we can't afford. God is putting the finishing touches on what? To waste a minute must not squander these precious daylight hours in frivolity, indulgence, in sleeping around, in dissipation, in bickering, and grabbing everything in sight. Get out of bed and get dressed. Don't loiter and linger. Um, are you th- assuming that the women that you're talking to spend their days in bed? You know, if a guy said that, he would be raked over the coals. Waiting until the very last minute. Dress yourself in Christ and be up and about. Who is responsible for keeping ourselves from getting absorbed? You are. It says, don't let yourself. That's that rise up, rouse yourself. You have to every day decide that your day will not absorb you. That your day. You have to decide that your day will not absorb you. Um, excuse me for interrupting here, but. Listen, we all live in the real world, okay? In the real world, we serve our neighbors in our vocation. And those are God-given vocations. For instance, like when you read Ephesians, it talks about being a good husband, being a good wife, being a good son, good daughter, you know, things like that. And so God has made us mommies. God has made us dads. And, uh, and so if a woman is a mommy and she wakes up every day, and takes care of her children, that's a good work. That is a good and godly work. And if she's caught up in her entire day is spent doing that, she's doing the will of God because God instructs moms to be good moms. 
that's a good work according to Scripture. Why are you talking about their 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 vocation as moms in a way that it's getting in the way of the thing that God really wants them to do? That you know somehow I mean the way you're talking about it, it's as if being a mom is kind of something that. Well, it's a distraction from the real thing that God would really have them do. So don't fall asleep and let all your energy be sucked up in that. That's the way you're talking. And the way you're talking is completely contrary to what Scripture says. They will not suck you in and drain the life out of you. The opposite of absorb is to radiate. It's to release. It's to, you know, to generously give out. But when you're absorbed, when something sucks the life out of you, you know, I have so many women and they just say, you don't understand. You're saying change your world. I've just got kids and I'm trying to survive with myself. I do understand. Been there, done that. But even in that season, you need to say, this isn't what's going to absorb me. The busyness of this season isn't going to absorb me. My children are for signs and wonders. They are for destiny and not destruction. And you need to raise your children. My kids are for signs and wonders and destiny, not destruction. What? With a mindset, you're positioning them for strength, to be alert to what God is doing and not to be absorbed in that moment. We're responsible for what we allow to absorb and exhaust us. You say, well, my husband, no, I'm sorry. It's you. It's you. You have to decide what you're going to give your energy to and what you're going to get your life from. What's wrong with giving your energy to being a good mom or a good dad or things like that? hmm? So. We don't want to run so exhausted that we run the risk of being oblivion, an oblivion Christian, incapacitated, growling, knowing something's going on, but not being able to find our feet. You know, as the day begins, you know, each of us has a journey every day, and it's a course of 24 hours. And Paul is actually saying, track the time, track the time. And it's interesting. He, he starts with day, and then he goes hour and minute. It's that kind of not even squander one minute. We need to not squander means redeem it, redeem it. That means you free it up for what's important. And so we all need to be people that free up our days for what's important. And don't say, well, Lisa said, I don't have to do laundry. I do my laundry. I, I, I don't do my ironing cause I'm awful, but I do my laundry. So I'm not talking about that, but it isn't what absorbs me. So there's a difference on the attitude on that. We don't want to wander off course. We don't want to live in a state of exhaustion and miss the path. People fall asleep at the wheel. They swerve. We don't want to be swerving. We want to know what path we're on. And we don't want to be insensible to what God is doing because he's putting the finishing touch on everything he began. This is the most exciting time. Finishing touch. You know, the final thing before the house is ready. So God is the author and he is finishing what he began. And so this is really a constant theme that is... What is he finishing that he began? What are you talking about? It's going to be find our feet, find up, get up, get dressed, get in motion. And you know, right now, we live in a very dangerous time. And um, I can't even tell you how dangerous it is. I've, you know, been declaring for, for years that women are answers to problems, you know, but, but we need to actually realize what that might look like right now. They're saying 50 million women are missing and that's conservative off of the face of the globe. And you say, Oh, I've heard about sex trafficking. Actually, this has nothing to do with sex trafficking. Sex trafficking has like 12 million. This is 50 million women missing because of something called gender side. Don't 
imagine Satan hasn't intentionally targeted women. He has, I mean, it's not man decide. I mean, this is gender side and they're killing women just because they're women in countries like China and India. They either get no medical you know, support, they get no value and they are missing. And you say, how could this possibly be true? Well, a Nobel Prize winning economist did the birth projections. And it used to be that there was 107 females for every 100 males pretty much consistently throughout the earth. It is that way here. It is that way in Europe. It is that way in Canada. It's that way in South America. But guess what? They found out in countries like Afghanistan and Pakistan, there was 111 men for every 100 women. And those are nations that have been in war. So that doesn't make any sense. And they began to say, what has happened? How did these women go missing? And we don't notice it because it happens every day. And things that happen every day, you don't notice. And so this has been happening. And they're saying that two... What does this have to do with anything? Two million women go missing every year. So 50 million, well, actually 67 to 102, but 50 million minimum. Two million go missing every year. I was so appalled by this that I felt like everybody else needed to be appalled. And so I put it on Twitter. And my Twitter feeds to my Facebook. And so it went on Twitter and then it fed to Facebook. Now on my Facebook, I have the potential uh, to respond or get, you know, reactions from 37,000 people. And on my Facebook, I got maybe 40 responses. I actually think it was probably 35. But I got like 40 responses and they were things like, what's gender side? That can't be right. Are you sure? They weren't even, I mean, a couple of people were like, that's awful. But very few actually got the weight of that. But I also did a survey. I was getting ready to preach in a mixed audience. And I've been known to wear sleeveless because I hate like pitting out my clothes. And so I had said, is it okay to preach sleeveless? And I actually didn't even say it was a mixed gender. I just said, is it okay for a woman minister to preach sleeveless? And then I went and recorded the Linus Rising audiobook. Okay. Um, woman preacher to preach sleeveless to a mixed audience of male and female. Bible forbids that, not the sleeveless part, but the person in the sleeves or sleeveless. I came back. My office said, what did you do? We had 450 responses on Facebook about the sleeveless issue. And there was the pro-sleeveless and there was the anti-sleeveless and there was a war among the pro-sleeveless and the anti-sleeveless and they were attacking one another and they were like four sleeves against sleeves attacking each other. And then some people were defending me and there was just like all this stuff happening. And, you know, I, I said something like, okay, I'm a little disturbed that I say 50 million women are missing and I get 40 responses and I say, you know, sleeveless and I get 450 and somebody said, well, you ask a question. So when you ask a question, you're always going to get more response on Facebook. But the truth is I had also made a statement and I said this, I said, gender alone does not qualify a man to be a leader. Therefore, gender alone should not disqualify a female. I said, virtue is the qualifier for leadership, whether we be male or female. And you would have thought I had said that Jesus and Satan were brothers that got 500 responses. Again, people arguing among each other. Listen, when people have no purpose, they argue about what is permissible and what is not permissible. It happened in the day of Jesus. People were straining gnats and swallowing camels. Two million women 
going missing every year is a camel. Sleeveless is a gnat. And we need to understand we get riled up about the unimportant because we are not part of what God has ordained for us as our purpose for our life. And people that have purpose get it. And they don't like argue about sleeveless. Okay. And I did want an opinion and I was thankful for if you gave an opinion. Thank you. I wasn't wanting an opinion, but I didn't want a war. And I was really disappointed and I had to delete the thread because I didn't want anybody to see Christians treating each other and calling each other's names over sleeveless. So I don't want you to have a passive response. I think we need to be fiercely respondent to this. When I hear 2 million women go missing, I need to be upset. And if I'm not upset, I need to ask why I'm not upset. And I need to get whatever gunk is in my heart out until I'm actually upset about it. And you can say, well, that's an over there problem. Hey, what we tolerate for over there will eventually come over here. So we need to understand that over there problems are our problems. And if we're all a body, then it all affects each other. So we need to change that. So we need to actually have a fierce response. I love Hosea 13, seven through eight. I'm going to read out the new living. It says, so now this is God talking. So now I will attack you like a lion, like a leopard that lurks along the road, like a bear whose cubs have been taken away. Um, uh, Hosea 13, seven through eight is not telling us to be lion like, <clears throat> let me read from the prophet Hosea chapter 13. I'll apply our three rules for sound biblical hermeneutics, context, context, and context. Here's what it says. Verse one, when Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He was exalted in Israel, but he incurred guilt through Baal and died. And now they sin no more, and they sin more and more, and make for themselves metal images, idols skillfully made for their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. It is said of them, those who offer human sacrifices kiss calves. Therefore, they shall be like the morning mist or like the dew that goes early away, like the chaff that swirls from the threshing floor, or like smoke from a window. In other words, the context of this passage is God's judgment against idolaters in Ephraim. <clears throat> Verse 4, But I and the Lord your God from the land of Egypt, you know no God but me, and besides me there is no Savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. But when they had grazed, they became full and were filled, and their heart was lifted up. Therefore they forgot me. So I am like I am to them like a lion, like a leopard. I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their breast, and there I will devour them like a lion, as a wild beast would rip them open. He destroys you, O Israel, for you are against me, against your helper. Where now is your king to save you in all of your cities? Where are all of your rulers? Those of whom you said, give me a king and princes. I will give you a king in my anger. And I took him away in my wrath. Yeah, see, this is a judgment. So I wouldn't exactly hold this passage up as one that we want to emulate. Because what we're talking about is God using metaphorical language to talk about destroying evildoers. That's what he's talking about. This isn't a call for us to be more lion-like. Way. I will tear out your heart. I will devour you like a hungry lioness and mangle you like a wild animal. Okay. I actually think fierce, 
factors into God's response. And I think... Yes, to idolatry, but um, that's God's response. The church is called to proclaim the ministry of reconciliation. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. To announce to the world that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him. For God made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that we might be the righteousness of God. See, the church has been given the ministry of reconciliation. This judgment stuff of God... God gets to do that part. The church is about proclaiming the gospel and forgiving sinners. The the punishments that God's going to bring on idolaters and evil people and murderers and stuff like that, that's up to him. Okay, and of course, you know, you know, somebody commits a law, uh, commits a crime, and breaks a civil law. God will punish them through the civil authorities. But it's not the job of the church to come out fiercely against people and rise up like lions and tear their hearts out and stuff. And yeah, that's it's a misapplication and misappropriation of Os- of Hosea here. Sometimes we act passive, and we get passive aggressive, and then we're not aggressive with what we need to be aggressive with. We need to be aggressive on these issues and a fierce reaction. Do I have moms here? Have any of you, you know, when you first had your babies, did you ever have dreams about somebody trying to hurt your baby? Did you wake up almost trying to kill somebody? Okay. But see, that was a God thing. That protectiveness of, I am going to protect those that can't protect themselves is a God response. And we need to not just be upset because you can be upset and asleep. But if you're awake, You'll respond and you'll begin to strategize how to be virtuous, how to be capable and have that response. See, we don't need to kill and eat, but we do need to respond. And God did not save you to tame you. He didn't save you to make you domesticated and let out every once in a while to go to the bathroom. Said the woman who learned about lions while sitting in her air-conditioned home home while watching television. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Boy, this is authentic feralness, isn't it? And fed once a day. He saved you so that you could be released to be more than a pet because before you were domesticated by Satan and now God wants to release you. Yeah. Got any verses that say that? So we need to understand the difference of why. You know, Luke 4, verses 18 through 19, the messages actually really captures where we are. It says, God's spirit is on me. It's on you. Because he has chosen me, chosen us, to preach the message of good news. To- no, no. Uh, Luke 4, um, notice what she was doing there. In fact, um, let's take a look at that passage. Luke chapter 4, what she's referring to is Jesus speaking um, at Nazareth, if I'm not mistaken. And, uh, yeah, it's uh, – Let me. in fact, let me read it from the um, ESV, a real translation – uh, Luke chapter four verse sixteen, and he Jesus came to Nazareth, Nazareth, sorry, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue, and on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovery of sight to the blind, and set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him, Jesus. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your Hearing. Mm. 
In other words, he was reading a messianic passage from the book of Isaiah and applying it to himself. Well, watch what Lisa Bevere is doing with this passage. She's inserting us into this passage in her misreading from the message paraphrase. She's actually engaging in narcissists during this jungle Jesus um, message. Yeah, let me back this up just a little bit. Here we go. Luke 4, verses 18 through 19, the message actually really captures where we are. It says, God's spirit is on me. It's on you. No, it doesn't say it's on me. It said it was on Jesus. Because he has chosen me, chosen us. No, chosen Jesus. It's a messianic prophecy. To preach the message of good news to the poor. Sent me, you and me, to announce pardon to the prisoners. Recovery of... Yeah, apparently, who knew that, that this passage wasn't only just about Jesus, it's about Lisa Bevere. Of sight to the blind, to set the burdened and battered free, and to announce this is God's year to act. There needs to be an announcement of the now. And Jesus busted this out. And I love Jesus because he busts this out, carpenter's son, quoting Isaiah 61, and then sits down. And everybody's like, what was that? What was this carpenter's son, you know, yelling this out and you know, reading the scroll of Isaiah? What does he think he is? And it says that everybody was looking at him. Yeah, because everybody knew that that was a prophecy regarding the Messiah, and Jesus was claiming it for himself. And this is what he said. He said, you just heard scripture make history. It came true. Um, what? Just now in this place. So we have to decide, is scripture going to make history in our life? Because Jesus actually didn't do anything there, but he actually took. Is scripture going to make history in our lives? This is nonsensical now. Took this commission on and this purpose on. We are anointed for a reason. Christian means anointed. It doesn't mean escaping the rapture. It means anointed one. And so we need to be. So now we're little messiahs because that's what messiah means. Anointed one. Got it? Anointed. We need to do that. And he sat down. But, you know, if you're going to make history, you need to understand the next thing I'm going to tell you. If I'm going to make history, what if I don't want to make history? Am I sinning? I don't see any passages in Scripture that command me. Thus saith the Lord, you need to make history. I'm serving my neighbor in my vocation. If I make history, I make history. If I don't, I don't. Who cares? Get the, these are things that God is concerned with, not me. And that is a quote by Laurel Ulrich, and it is that well-behaved. Oh, Laurel Ulrich, yeah, she's not found in Scripture. Behaved women rarely make history. And you can say, I don't... Uh, what? Politely behaved women rarely make history? Uh-oh. Believe that. I believe I'm so good and I can be well-behaved. Okay, let's talk about these history-making women in the Bible. Ray okay, now watch what she does here. This is... Uh-huh. Yeah. What was she? A prostitute. Are you saying these women should prostitute themselves in order to make history? Hmm. What was Rahab? Oh, a prostitute. Is that well-behaved? No, not only a prostitute. She lies to her king. She hides enemy spies. Okay? She is the only one that escapes judgment. She breaks allegiances with her own nation. Bathsheba. Bathsheba. Not well-behaved. Adulteress. I don't know what that was. So are you thinking that if these women really want to make history, they should become adulterous prostitutes? 
That's the application I'm seeing from what you're doing with these texts. All right, Abigail, not well behaved. Her husband had said, no, David, David can't be part of the feast. Abigail said, so sorry, it was all my fault. I'm going to bring you my portion of the feast. And by the way, David, you know, I think my husband might just die when I come home and tell him all this. Will you remember me? Okay, so I don't even know. Then we've got Deborah. Deborah is supposed to be sitting on a palm tree, but no, she rallies the armies and she makes them all meet. She calls the princes of exile. Mary, teen pregnancy. Now, you'd think that uh, she's actually rightly hand- No, she's not even close to handling God's word right. Now we're up to Mary, the teen pregnancy. JL. Yeah, no, <clears throat> Mary, the teen pregnancy. Yeah, she's not well behaved at all. She She had a teen pregnancy. Virgin birth there, um, Lisa. The guy was asleep in her tent. Did she have to kill him with a tent peg? No. Yeah, Jael did. He was the enemy of Israel. Uh huh. Oh, but Jael, she just takes it to the limit. Then we've got Esther. She was warned from the other queen. You don't come if you're not called, and you do come when you are called. But she comes when she's not called. Tamar pretended to be a prostitute and slept with her father-in-law. Yeah, so so the takeaway application is these women should become adulterous prostitutes so that they're not well-behaved so they can change history. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. That's the worst. And then we've got Rosa Parks. Uh, Rosa Parks, yeah, she's not in the Bible. Yeah, it's true. She's not there. Rosa Parks, I don't know what happened with Rosa. I don't know if she was premenstrual. I don't know if she just got on the bus and she was like, I'm sitting down. This is ridiculous. This is a bunch of nonsense. I am not moving to the back of the bus. Well, actually, this message is a bunch of nonsense for sure. And you know what? I don't think Rosa knew that in that moment her butt was making history. I think she just was sitting there saying, enough. This is so silly. Sometimes making history requires you sit. And sometimes it means you stand. And sometimes it means you go places you were not invited. And so, uh, Where in the Bible are we commanded to make history? Sometimes it means you rally an army you're not supposed to rally. It means different things. And sometimes it means you break allegiances with an enemy king to align yourself with what God is doing. Yeah, um, sure. Yeah, because we all have opportunities every day to break allegiances with enemy kings. But it's different all the time. And so if you're going to be a history-making woman, you need to understand you'll be misunderstood. I doubt if any of these women in their moment was understood. But history will write... Yeah, where in the Bible does it say that those women were misunderstood? I think they were understood pretty well. Their stories are actually fairly easily easy to understand. Something different about you. If you do it right, and if you do it with the right motive. So are we willing to run that risk? The risk of what again? Are we willing to run that risk? To the risk of being dangerous when you're awake so that you're not tranquilized? Oh, yeah. See, we need to remember, and I'm just going to wrap what we've gone over. To get to the men, the enemy will tranquilize the women. Yeah. Because that's what he does. Because you saw that on Animal Planet. And that's how Satan operates. He tranquilizes women. He'll absorb you. He'll make you so busy that you have no strength for anything else. Yeah, because, you know, your children are a distraction from you being able to be a history-making woman, apparently. You need to remember, there's nothing more dangerous than you finding your feet and being fully awake. You need to remember that if you're awake, you actually have the power to respond and not just be upset. 
Yeah, that you, so you need to not sleep ever. People that are awake know what they're supposed to do. Right, because people who are, you can't be sleeping anymore. No more sleep for you women. you got to stay awake 24-7. I used to do wake-up call in my sorority, and all I was responsible for doing was waking them up. I didn't say, get up, you have a test. I didn't say, get up, you need to study. I didn't say, get up, you're meeting your boyfriend. I just had to wake them up. And once they were fully awake, they actually, their day came into clarity and focus, and they knew what they were supposed to do. And Yeah, that's generally how it happens every day for most people. <laughs> they go from being asleep to waking up and coming into full clarity and then knowing what to do. This is not profound at all. This is just kind of how things are every day. We need to remember that we're God-created answers, but there's massive problems, and it's dangerous out there. And so we need to be women that get a little danger factor into us. Yeah, just get a little danger factor. Uh There is a problem out there that God created each of you individually to be an answer to. And the verse for that is what again? And you're going to have to decide if you're going to actually look for that answer instead of just sitting around and pointing out problems. You know, the root of Sodom's sin was not homosexuality. I'm always shocked by how many Christians, if I say, what was the sin of Sodom? They're like, oh, homosexuality, sexual perversion, idolatry. Actually, the Bible says that Sodom was proud, overfed, and unconcerned. Now, that's what I would call a half answer, half answer. Yes, there's a passage that talks about Sodom in that way. It's found in Ezekiel chapter 16. I'll read starting in verse 46. Here's what it says. And your elder sister is Samaria, who lived with her daughters to the north, and your younger sister who lived in the south of you is Sodom with her daughters. Not only did you walk in their ways and do according to their abominations, with within a very little time, you were more corrupt than they in all of your ways. As I live, declares the Lord God, your sister Sodom and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom, and she and her daughters had pride, excess of food, prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. Now, if you pay attention to the language here, the grammar here, um, Sodom is, well, kind of a code word. You know, it's a name thrown on to part of Israel for their wicked ways. But here it says that the sin of Sodom included <clears throat> an abomination that is not mentioned. The abominations of Sodom, that's mentioned, abominations, but it doesn't say specifically what it is. However, Jude does. And, um, and the excess of food, prosperous ease, did not aid the poor and the needy. Okay. So, yes, you could talk about the sin of Sodom in that way. However, we also have the half-brother of Jesus telling us in Jude verse 7 about Sodom and Gomorrah. Here's what he says, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Here, Sodom's sin is mentioned as sexual immorality and pursuing of unnatural desire, a.k.a. homosexual copulation. That's what it's referring to there. So I, yeah, this, again, when somebody talks like this, um, generally they have an agenda. And their agenda is to undo the misconception that uh, Sodom, well, sodomy has something to do with homosexual sin and sexual immorality. 
it does. Scripture makes it clear that it does in no unambiguous terms. And yet we also have Ezekiel talking also of their ease and excess and how they were haughty and how they didn't help the poor and the needy. When you look at it that way, you go, oh, all of that goes together, doesn't it? Yes, it does. And yet Jude singles out their homosexual sin. So keep that in mind. We continue. That they did not mind the plight of the widow and the orphan that was at their gate. And I need to ask, are we in that same posture of overfed and unconcerned? Because actually God talks to Israel and he says, you held up Sodom as like the ultimate sinners. And he said, but you know what? They look righteous compared to you. To whom much is given, much is required. We have been given abundance. And so we need to be generous people. It's better to swallow a gnat than swallow a camel. And we need to get those priorities in our life. You need to remember that God... Yeah, it's probably painful to swallow a a lion, too. God did not save you to tame you. And that the well-behaved rarely make history. You know, I... I, Yeah, so don't be well-behaved. That's the takeaway, the application here. Don't be well-behaved. I wish it was different. I wish that I could tell you that you'll be completely um, understood. But we are women rising up in a season of transition between the way things are and the way they should be. And so we need to understand... That we need to. Yeah, I don't even know what she's talking about. She sounds like she's got some agenda in mind, doesn't it? Strategize and be very wise and make sure that everything we do isn't for our own benefit, but it's for the benefit of all, that it's the benefit of others. And if we have that motive, we'll do it better. And so I actually want to just pray again because I believe that you are here because you want to be dangerous and fully awake. So, Father. Yeah, no, you're done. Okay, yeah, sorry, I don't allow people who don't rightly handle God's word and who engage in jungle Jesus and Narsa Jesus to um, pray for us. So there you go. I don't know what to make of that. It's a new category of eisegesis called jungle Jesus, and apparently uh, you can talk about being feral while sitting in your air-conditioned home watching television, you know, the animal planet, and watching a documentary about lions and then finding spiritual insights that apparently apply to all of the body of Christ. Who knew? Well, that's none of that was actually biblical. None of it actually conveyed to you anything that really truly was God's will. Like none of it at all. All done in the name of Christian women's retreatage and things like that. So if uh, your church is considering inviting Lisa Bevere um, send them over to the sermon review and uh, demonstrate that uh, Lisa Bevere is not somebody who should be asked to speak to anybody because she doesn't know what she's doing, yet alone uh, she has no clue how to handle God's word. You get what I'm saying? We're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. You can follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of our sins. Amen. <laughs>